It's fine. It's fine, brother. It's brother Pete. It's fine. It's okay. I won't wander around the day. <laughs> but we're in Exodus chapter 25 tonight. Exodus chapter 25. Um, we're talking about this evening the importance of the tabernacle. I don't know how many of you have heard a lesson or a message on the tabernacle, but I studied this uh, this week and this afternoon especially a little more. It's interesting what we can learn from the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament is was really given, of course, to the Jews, but for us in the New Testament, it has so many so many symbols, so many meanings that if you look into it, it, it's easy just to gloss through it and read, read through this chapter and say, well, that's, you know, that was for them. And there's a lot of things that we find in it that really, really point us to Christ. And, of course, ultimately, uh, hopefully the Jewish people would see that. Of course, many of them have, have not seen it as I was over in Israel. Uh, many of them are still, most of them are still looking for a coming Messiah. Uh, they're looking for one that, that, that will come. Of course, we believe that he has come that he did die for not only their sins, but for the sins of the whole world, and that one day they will, in the middle of the tribulation, we believe, they will recognize that they have, they have failed. They recognize that, that they uh, crucified the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and they'll, they'll weep and wail, and they'll recognize they're wrong. But and that is, that's a sad day. Because the truth of the of the gospel, the truth of Christ is is in the scriptures. But so like so like many things in life, if you don't want to see it, you won't see it. But if you seek for it, if you hunt for it, if you want to find it, you'll find it in the scriptures. So in Exodus chapter twenty five, we're looking at the the importance of the tabernacle. The Bible says, "The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart." He shall take my offering, and this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram's skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, for the sweet incense, onyx stones, the stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt all over it with pure gold, within, without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make, make upon it a crown of gold round about, and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. The two rings shall be in the one side of it, the two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, overlay them with gold. Thou shalt put the staves in the rings and the sides of the ark, and the ark may be borne within them. And the staves shall be rings of ark, and they shall be not taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testament which I shall give thee. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Thou shalt thou and make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall thou make cherubs on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat. And their wings and their faces shall look one to another towards the mercy seat. Shall the faces of the cherubs be? Cherubim's be, and thou shalt put in the mercy seat above the ark, ark thou shalt put the testament which I shall, shall give thee, 
and there I will meet with thee and will com commune with thee and above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give in the commandment to the children of Israel. And thou shalt make two, a table of shittim wood, two cubits uh, shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, a cubit and a half the length, the height thereof, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make in, uh, here it thereunto a, gold, a crown of gold around about. Thou shalt make unto a, it a border, and a hand breadth and about, and thou shalt make a crown of gold in the border thereof round about, and thou shalt make it for four rings of gold, and put in the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border thou sh shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table, and thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and, the, and that the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and the spoons thereof, and the covers thereof, and the bowls thereof, and the cover withal. Of pure gold thou shalt thou make them, and thou shalt set upon them the table showbread before me alway. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shalt they, shall the candlestick be made. This His shaft, and his branches, and his, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be the same. And six branches shall thou come out of the sides of it. There three branches of the candlesticks out of one side, three branches of the candlesticks out of the, out of the other side. Through bowls shalt thou make into almonds with the knop on the flower and one branch, and three bowls shalt they shall like almonds in the other branch with the knop and a flower. So in the six branches in the come out of the candlestick, and the candlestick shall be four bowls, made like the almonds with the knops and the flowers, and there shall be a knop under the branches of the same, and the knob under the two branches of the same, and the knob under the two branches of the same, according to the six branches, according to the candlestick, and the knobs under the branches shall be of the same. All shall be of wheat and work of pure gold, and shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and shall light the lamps thereof. Thou shalt give light over against it, and the, and the tongues thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold, and with talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels, and look thou... Look that thou, that thou make them after the pattern which, which showed thee in the mount. Wow. God's a God of detail, isn't he? He's a God of detail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wondrous word. And I pray, Lord, as we look into these things, Lord, that seem uh, really focused so much on the Jewish people, but they have so much meaning for us today. Help us, Lord, to dig out treasure from this passage and see how it applies to our own lives personally. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapters 21 through 24 covered the book of the covenant for God's people. These chapters contain the first installment of the laws for the Hebrew nation, which, not, which will not take the time to address tonight, but these laws were written in the book. The covenant must be obeyed and sealed with blood. We read in Exodus chapter 24, uh, 4 and 7 and 8, Moses wrote, All the words of the Lord rose up early in the morning, built an altar under the hill, 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He took the book of the covenant, read to the audience of the people, and said, All that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. The laws covered in this book are about to be about the following issues. It goes from slavery to death, for murder, kidnapping, cursing of parents, eye to eye, compensation, stealing, restitution for damages of crops, uh, sorcery, immorality, idolatry, 
pledges, lending, firstborns, false reports, mobs, justice, consideration for animals, bribes, strangers, the Sabbath, sabbatical year, Passover, the Feast of Harvest. Uh, all these were mentioned or talked about in these chapters, verses, uh, chapters 21 through 24. But in chapter 25 through 31, we, given, we were given uh, direct instructions about the tabernacle. And in chapters 35 through 40, we just, it's discussed in the book of Exodus, the actual construction of the temple, of the tabernacle. So why is the Old Testament tabernacle important to believers today? Why study it? Why just, just jump into the New Testament? Well, the tabernacle is significant because it reveals the redemptive, saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reveals that God's principles and plan for salvation, especially, of course, to the Jewish people. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The verse reveals that Christ's death was spoken of from the foundation of the world. Of course, you know the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talks about uh, the fact that Christ will come, some, come one day and destroy the works of the devil. The principle of his death are seen in the tabernacle. Worship of the tabernacle was central to the spiritual well-being of the Israelites. And, and, and only when we begin to understand that God dealt with them as he deals with us, will we begin to see the tremendous importance of the tabernacle. Now, when I was in Israel, I got to take several pictures of uh, basically, I guess you would call it a recreation of the tabernacle. We're taken to this place, and we got to see the whole tabernacle as it would be used in the wondrous wilderness wonderings. I'll say it right. I would love to show it to you, but we're having some issues with our projector, so I didn't put those all together in a PowerPoint. But it was interesting, was this group of uh, uh, Messianic Jews put this uh, together, and our tour guide, Brad Bro thought it would be uh, very good for us to see it. And we got to see a real live recreation of this tabernacle, the exact uh, dimensions of where everything would be laid out, the exact colors, uh, everything that we read in here. Uh, it was to, it's to the exact um, degree that they could recreate it uh, for today. They did it. I'm not sure they use pure gold now, okay. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was more, you know, like a gold-plated paint. Because <laughs> if they had pure gold out there in the middle of the wilderness, somebody, somebody would probably be coming out there getting the stuff. So it wasn't pure gold as we were talking about here, but it represented it, and it, it, looked, it looked like gold, okay? So some folks believe the tabernacle was not important because it was used only for 40 years. But actually, it was used for 640 years. In addition, when the tabernacle was no longer in use, Israel came to worship at Solomon's temple, of course, which was a more permanent structure than the tabernacle, and continued to do so, ultimately, from the time of Israel's birth here uh, to the time of Christ. Of course, it stopped when the veil was uh, split in two at Christ's death. Israel approached God with the same system which started with in the wilderness, the fact that it was used for so long indicates it's definitely, it was definitely important. Another factor of importance was the location of the tabernacle, which was in the center of the camp, the center of place. And it goes to show that really God should be the center of our lives. He shouldn't just be a part of our lives. He should be the center of our lives. The tabernacle was also 
the center of nation during the journeys of the people. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 17, the tabernacle of the congregation shall set forth with the camp of Levites in the midst of the camp. As they encamp, so shall they set forward every man in his place by their standards. So God used the tabernacle, its priesthoods, its rituals, its offerings and furniture as an object lesson, basically to preach salvation to the Jewish people. So when Jesus came, he revealed himself, of course, in the Gospels. It was concealed to them in the shadow of the tabernacle. The only thing that was lacking in the gospel preached the tabernacle was the fact that Christ had not yet died as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So that gives you a little bit of an introduction of why the tabernacle is important. But specifically, we see the tabernacle as a type of Christ. The tabernacle as a type of Christ. First of all, the commencement of the Christian life, the brazen altar. The brazen altar, of course, where the sacrifice was laid, uh, points geographically to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This was the first place the priest came in the tabernacle courtyard. The cross is the starting point of all our redemption. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by the, or his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes of heifer sprinkling with the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if the Jews in the Old Testament used the blood of bulls and calves and goats for temporary uh, forgiveness of sin, how much more is the blood of Jesus Christ, the, sin, the, sinless, the sinless Savior, cleanse us of all our sin? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, but without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Now a lot of people, even in Christianity today, say, why is the blood of Jesus Christ important? Dear friend, if Jesus Christ did not shed his blood, we could not be saved. If he would have died, if he would have died without bloodshed, we could not be saved. Now, there's people, even quote-unquote good people, who say, well, it's just that he died. And yes, it's important that he died. He had to die. But he had to shed his blood. Blood had to be shed. And all this points back to what happened in the Old Testament. Christ's blood was shed so that we could have redemption, so that we could be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That means there is no forgiveness of sin. It was, it was throughout the Old Testament, his blood being shed was foretold over and over and over, especially through the sacrificial system. And so it's very important that we recognize that. So we see the commencement of the Christian life, the brazen altar. But secondly, the cleansing of the Christian life, the laver. The laver is a place, of course, where the, where the, the priest would go to wash his hands. That is a, a picture of our sanctification. The fact that we are forsaken by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we need to continually sanct be sanctified. To be sanctified means to set apart. There's times in our life, special times in our life where we're going through difficulty or trials or trouble 
or uh, special moments in our life, or we need to set apart our time. Many of you, uh, you, you get ready to go through a surgery or get something to go have something due to you. Your doctors say, now don't eat for 24 hours, and that's always a painful process. What is he doing? They're trying to sanctify you, set your body apart, preparing you for that surgery. And so it is in the Christian life. We should stay away from sinful things, sin, sinful uh, uh, habits and hobbies. We should get, set ourselves clean. And how do, we, how do we do that? Well, you wash yourself by daily spending time in God's Word. That's how you wash yourself. That's why you go clean because this book's like a mirror. You look at it, you read it, you study it, you meditate upon it, you memorize some verses, hopefully, and as you look at this mirror, which is the Word of God, you see yourself, and you and the Holy Spirit communes with your spirit and says, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't watch that TV program, or maybe I shouldn't hang around that person because they're a gossip, they're a talebearer, they, they, they say dirt, they talk dirty all the time. I shouldn't be around that. God wouldn't want me to do that. So daily, like the high priest would go and wash himself, prepare himself, cleanse himself. We need to daily be cleansed by the word of God. We need to daily cleanse our conscience. Go before God and say, God, search me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way of me. Lead me to the paths of, of, of understanding and light and truth. You know, keep me, keep me always before you. Show me what I, the way I should go. Cleanse me, wash me. As David say, purge me with hyssop that I might be clean. Wash me, whiter than snow. That should be my attitude. Our attitude should never be, well, I'm trying to get away with it. I don't want anybody to know. I'm trying to hide my sin. Dear friend, how are you going to hide your sin from God? You can't hide your sin from God. Could Adam and Eve hide in the Garden of Eden? No, they couldn't hide in the Garden of Eden. Neither can we hide our sin. So the best thing to do, instead of hiding it, is to confess it. Confession means you say the same thing about your sin that God does. If, you're a, if you lie, call yourself a liar. Not, I just exaggerate every once in a while. If you're a thief, don't say, oh, oh you know, I borrow every once in a while. No, just call yourself a thief. God, you are what you are. Be honest before God. So the cleansing part of the Christian life is the laver. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he may sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Thirdly, the cultivation of the Christian life, the table of showbread. The table of showbread was a picture of, of the maturing process of the Christian life. It was a place of fellowship for the priests. It speaks of our fellowship that we have together as Christians and individuals. We feast or make, make the bread of life, Jesus Christ and his word, part of our lives. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I had a good friend named Matt Burt that I used to work with at the church that I cannot name. And he would always make this state, statement, put it in the light. Put it in the light. The light. Put it in the light. Don't try to hide things. Put it in the light. Because God is a God of light. He's a God of life. 
John, John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I give is my flesh, which I shall give for my life of the world. So he's our life. He's our light. Fourth, the candles, the calling of the Christian is the golden candlestick. As the golden candlesticks gives, gives off light to the holy place, the tabernacle. So the Christian is to shine forth and reflect the light of Christ Jesus through the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, really, friends, we have two choices every day that you live. You either walk by faith in the Spirit of God or you walk by fear in the flesh of the devil, which is our former father. So either you're walking like your old father in the flesh and in fear, doing your own thing, living your own life, or you're walking by faith, by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit of God because of your new father, because you've been born again, not of corruptible sin, but of incorruptible, which is the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So ask yourself a question. On this day, or maybe yesterday, did you walk a life of fear? And faithlessness, like you did in the flesh before you were born again, or did you walk in a life of fear or, or faith? Which one? It's one of the two every day of our life. At the end of the day, you could basically say, well, this day was a day of fear. I was going to go pass out this track, but I was afraid they would say something against me. I was going to go tell somebody who I know they were doing wrong. And, you know, as a brother in Christ, when we see somebody else doing something wrong, in love and in mercy, we're supposed to go to that person because, you know, if we, if we were doing wrong, we want somebody to come to me. But I didn't do it because I was afraid if I do it, they'd reject me. No. No, you walk by faith and not by sight. It's a choice that you have. It's a choice that we make every day. Fifth, the conduit. The, con the conduct of the Christian, the golden altar of incense. The altar of incense speaks to the private and personal relationship of the believer with the Lord as the Christian engages to worship the Lord from the heart. He learns the importance and power of prayer by engaging in prayer. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, another angel came and stood by the altar having a golden censer, and there was with given within him much incense and should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So we have this, the, the Christian conduct, uh, a golden altar of incense. That is our prayer. That is our time of, of speaking to God and communicating with him, which is really essential because God in his word is speaking to us. We, by prayer, speak to him. I think sometimes we get this idea of prayer only has to be at certain times of the day. Like first thing in the morning, first time when we go to get some lunch, and then we go to dinner, then we go to bed, and that's it. But dear prayer, prayer is not just at certain points of the day when we eat, when we get up, when we go to bed. All oh, those are important. But prayer, the Bible says about prayer, we should have prayer should be a, a constant in our life. Pray without ceasing. It should be like the breath that you breathe, the prayers that you give. You should be at any moment available. Uh, able to pray and talk to your heavenly father do you avail yourself of that opportunity do you avail yourself when is it inconvenient for a child to talk to his parent my, my 
my kids pretty much call me anytime, and I'm going to make time for them. Now it's very precious when they call me. Micah called his mom yesterday and, and talked to him, and she was so happy because she hadn't heard from him in like two weeks. It was like, okay, Ann, don't, don't, don't call him. Don't call him. Don't call him. Don't call him. She said, well, if, I'm going to give him one more week, then I'm going to call him. I said, just, just let him. It's okay. It's okay, but he's the baby. You know, he's the baby. He's the baby. He called yesterday. Well, I actually told him to call, so. <laughs> but he did. I'm glad he actually listened to me and called because a lot of times he doesn't listen to me. But he did yesterday, and he called his mom, so I was glad he listened to me that time. But it's good. It's good. It's a wonderful thing. Dear friends, if we're happy that our children call us, how much more is God happy when we talk to him? Because one of the most valuable commodities we have is our time. It's precious. And dear friends, we ought to take time every day to spend time talking to God. Do you talk to, you talk to him about your troubles? Do you talk to him about his, your sorrows? Do you talk to him about your problems? Do you go to him? I think oftentimes we talk to people around us who can do this much for us, this much for us, when we could talk to God who has infinite power to do everything for us. Who do you talk to the most? Oh, you talk to God. Six, the comprehension of the Christian life, the veil. The veil is the last barrier to the sweetness of the rest and the victory which God has for the Christians. This is the principle of grace. Total surrender to Jesus Christ is the only way to total victory. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, having therefore, therefore brethren, boldness to enter the holiness of the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus by a new and living way which he was consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. 2 Corinthians 3, 14, with their minds were blinded for unto this day remaineth the same veil taken away. In the reading of the Old Testament, which the veil is done away in Christ. This veil darkens their eyes. They can't see. Their eyes are blinded because they can't look through it to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Seventh, the consumption of the Christian life, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant indicates the presence of God. The presence of God for us and the power and pleasure. These places are places of close communion, peace, and rest. Jesus Christ himself is our mercy seat. He's our propitiation. He is our sacrifice for sins. His blood atones for our sins when we put our faith in him. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom the God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the mission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Know you not that you are the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So we no longer go and build a tabernacle where the presence of God is. As they did in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit resides in us. So we see, secondly, the tabernacle, another part as a type of Christ. It was located, as I mentioned earlier, in the midst or the middle of the camp. The tabernacle is the center of the camp, which speaks of, its, speaks of its preeminence. Beloved, Jesus is to be the center of our lives, as I mentioned. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. The tabernacle was entered through the camp of Judah, which speaks of Jesus' parentage. Messiah would be from his tribe. 
In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from the between his feet until Shiloh come, unto him shall be gathering of his people. The tabernacle was all separated from the rest of the camp, which speaks to the purity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, and be made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to them that obey him. Not only do we see the situation in the camp, but the substance in the camp. A wide variety of material was used in the tabernacle. There was the wood that was used. It was called Achaia or Shittim wood. The ark was primarily constructed out of an indestructible material known as Achaia or Shittim wood. The wood speaks of the perfect humanity of Christ since it is the earthly substance. The wood is very hard, close-grained. I got to see some of this Achaia wood. They had actually Achaia, uh, these different trees that were going that, that were grew up outside this camp, and I got to see these types of trees. The Achaia was a is a yellowish brown in color, turned darker, almost black as it aged. The wood was used as boards and pillars of the ark, ark of incense, the tab- table of showbread. The tree basically was surrounded by thorns, making it almost unapproachable almost in a sense like the holiness of God as we've seen throughout the Old Testament that God is not someone you could actually look at face to face but the Achaia tree is, is small larger items such as boards and pillars were made by joining wood together in Solomon's temple cedar and olive trees were used as well it was overlaid with gold gold was used in the tabernacle especially in the inside boards and the furniture it was used to overlay the wood gold was a picture of course of the deity of christ while wood pictured his humanity the walls were made of gold-plated upright boards they stood vertically in the sockets of silver the boards were around 15 feet long and 2.25 feet wide josephus the, the historian said these boards were about four fingers thick the boards were locked together by five gold overlaid bars inserted in the rings of the boards, and they were stood to on end in foundation of silver blocks. This was a picture of the unity and the fellowship of the saints. Cooperation is needed for service, and the boards demonstrate by this standing by side by side, being connected together by the bars so they could work together. And what type, what is needed whenever there's a working of together? Well, it's, it's humiliation. It's humbleness. No group of people can work together unless they humble themselves. If you have 10 chiefs and no Indians, nothing's going to get done. Right? Everybody can't be saying, and say, you, you do this, you do this, you do this. If everybody's telling people to do this, who's going to get the work done? <laughs> there has to be order. There has to be order. So humiliation is needed for servants. And it's seen in the cutting of the trees to provide wood for the boards. We see this in the Christian life. Paul, we, Paul, proclaims this utterly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, verses we've heard preached many times. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will, will of God. So we see the materials of the Achaia wood, the gold overlaid wood, the silver. The foundation of the tabernacle was made by silver sockets. It's entering the note that 3,000 shekels were used to form just one socket. This was a ransom money for 6,000 men. Two sockets were used for each board. They represented 12,000 men. 
One talent of silver was used for each of the 100 sockets. A talent was usually from 95 to 100 pounds. The total weight of the silver sockets came to about five tons. The value of the silver in the tabernacle estimated in May of 2007 was, was a price around 13 per ounce, which would make it uh, two, uh, over two, uh, 2,080,000. Exodus chapter 38, 25, it's in the silver of them that were numbered. The congregation uh, was 100 talents, and, and thousands were 100 and three, four, three score and 15 shekels. After the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca for every man, that is a half a shekel, and after the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone that went to be numbered from 20 years old and upward for 600,000 and 3,550 men of the 100 talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, 100 sockets of 100 talents, a talent for each socket. So silver was collected from the atonement offering, which the Bible says, and we look in chapter 25, the people gave willingly. God didn't force this on the people. God gave of the silver, gave the substance for the tabernacle willingly. It is true of everything. We don't go as you, as you walk out the door, we don't have two big men out there and shake you down and say, okay, you're going to tithe. <laughs> we don't have this thing locked down and say, okay, we're going to lock every door. And if, we, if you don't get the faith promise this month, it's over. We're, we're not letting anybody out. Now, there's been places I've heard of that do that. You know, they have like uh, 25 verses of I surrender all. And so after about the 20th verse, you just say, uh, here's my purse. Take everything. <laughs> so it is in the Christian life, you know. It's free will. You free will. So the silver in the Bible speaks to the atonement. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as you know you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Well, I want to go on to the, the spectrum of the colors, and I won't linger here far, but I love the different colors. We have blue. There was a blue color. The golden vessel of the sanctuary, with the exception of the ark, were all covered with a cloth of blue. I found it very interesting. The ability to make this color was lost for many years, but about 1890, a Jewish rabbi searched the Mediterranean Sea and discovered the uh, secret to the blue dye. It comes from actually a snail. The snail is called the murex snail, which gives off a yellowish fluid and turns a reddish-purple color when it's exposed to sunlight. The ultraviolet light from the sunrise causes a change in color. On a cloudy day, the fluid will turn to purple color, but on a cloudless day, it turns to a sky blue. Thousands of these snails are needed to, to dye one robe. For this reason, purple robes were very expensive and usually worn only by royalty of those who were very wealthy. The blue represents the gracious and holy character of God. It is the color of heaven's picture by the heavenly origin of Jesus Christ. Red or scarlet, the color of blood, speaks the course of Christ's sacrifice. It was the color of the earth. Flowers and plants displayed the color red. Before he was crucified, Jesus, of course, wore the red robe. The word scarlet is actually trans, transliterated, the word worm. Dye for the color comes from the cut and crushed eggs of the cochineal worm, which is found in oak trees. It's red as a deep blood red color called shiny. The color was used to make the curtains in the tabernacle. 
As we see in Exodus chapter 26, verse 1, more without shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet and cherubims of cunning work shall thou make them. Of course, there's purple, which is made by the mixing of blue and red. There's white, which is made, is making the linen, especially the priest's uh, garb and the roof. It speaks of the purity of Jesus Christ. All these colors, of course, speak of Christ as king, servant, perfect man, perfect, perfect God. They suggest a, a picture of Christ in the four Gospels. Of course, Matthew, purple, Christ the king. Mark, as the Christ, the servant God. Luke, white, speaks of Jesus, the son of man, and his perfect sinless humanity. And Jesus, and John, excuse me, blue, Jesus, the son of God, sent from, sent from heaven. And finally, as we close, we see the simplicity of the tabernacle. The simplicity of the tabernacle and the construction and the elements of the construction. The roof, the roof of the tabernacle con con consisted of four layers of material. First of all, linen. The curtain was made of fine twine linen. Remember, Brother uh, Cook from Canada talked about the fine twine linen throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The fine twine linen embroidered with blue and purple and red and gold. Herodotus stated, this historian Herodotus stated, the Egyptian linen was extremely fine, and each slender thread composed of 360 distinct threads. Wow. This was the only layer that was visible from inside. It covered the entire top and hung over the sides almost to the ground. Embroidered in patterns, patterns were, were figures of cherubim overshadowing the holy place and the holy holies. The cherubim were guardians of the holiness of God. A lion, a picture of, of power and kingship. A man representing the gospel of Mark where Jesus is seen in the Son of Man. The ox, a picture of, of service and sacrifice. And the eagle, a picture of om, omniscience and God being able to see in great distances all things. The great, this great roof was made of linen. You'd be interested to know some of you who raised goats and of goat hair. The second layer was goat hair. A second layer was made of the hair of goats. It was went over the linen and down to the sides of the ground. The goat in the Bible was a picture of Jesus Christ, our sin bearer. On Day of Atonement, the, pre, the priest would take two goats. One was slain, and the blood was poured out. This pointed to Calvary and the death of the cross. As we see in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every way, everyone his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all. Of course, the other goat was released in the, in the desert. This is a picture of Christ carrying away our sins as far as the east is from the west. This is the escape goat. The goat spoke of Christ as our sin barrier and our substitute. Thirdly, ram skins dyed red. The third layer was made of leather. Ram skins tanned and dyed a deep crimson color. We see in Exodus chapter 26, 14, Thou shalt make a covering for the tent of the ram skins dyed red, a covering above badger skins. The ram skins point to Christ in his role of the substitute for sinners. Red speaks of the blood atonement for our sin. The skin speaks of the blood covering the sins of those who shelter themselves under his canopy. The first mention of skins, of course, is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 when Adam and Eve had to cover themselves, cover their nakedness because of their sin. Fourth, fourth covering, or fourth layers, badger or porpoise skins. In verse 14, chapter 26, And thou shalt make a covering for the tent, ram skins dyed red, and a covering above of badger skins. The inner layer was called the tabernacle. 
The outer layer was called the tent. The outer layer had no beauty. It was drab and dull and exposed, of course, to the elements of sun, wind, and rain. But the inside was different. The word badger is from the Hebrew word, which, which basically means uh, a porpoise, a uh, marine animal from the Nile or Red Sea. The marine animal was released to the whale. To, was, excuse me, the, the marine animal was related to a whale or dolphin. The hide was, of course, excellent leather. It was highly waterproof and very durable. Their tabernacle would need, listen to this, 6,000 square feet of this material. Required the skins of 1,000 to 1,500 animals. This material was used for shoe leather and it did not wear out. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 10, I clothed thee also with bordered work and shod thee with badger skin and I girded thee about with fine linen and covered thee with silk. This layer of tabernacle pictured the humility of Christ. As Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, there was no apparent attractiveness about him, yet he was crucified. He was killed for our transgressions. We see the door of the tabernacle. The simplicity of the tabernacle is seen in the fact there was only one entrance to the courtyard. There was only one entrance into the tabernacle at the east end. And of course, we realize there's only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Acts chapter 2, and verse 21, And it came to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The floor of the sanctuary. The simplicity of the tabernacle is seen in the fact that there was no floor. It was just, it was just dirt. There was not gold, laded uh, boards or brass, which most of the time was copper. It was simply dirt. The lesson is the fact that even though we're saved, we're still exposed to the elements of this world. We live in a, we live in, in sense spiritually in the heavenlies, but we still live in this world, right? We still have pains and sorrows. We still struggle with the, with sin. In the tabernacle, their eyes were upon God and the glories within the tabernacle, but yet their feet were still on dirt. And finally, the ropes and pins. The Bible says in, in chapter 27, verse 19, all the vessels of the tabernacle and all their service thereof, all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. The ropes were placed over the roof and secured to a nail, stakes or pins in the ground, this made the tabernacle secure in storms. The priests were secure because the tabernacle was secure. We are secure in Christ. There's nothing that can take us out of his hand. I love what Jesus says, but there's no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Not trouble, not tribulation, not even our own sin can take us out of the Father's hand. Now we can use fellowship with him because of our sin. But we can never lose our relationship with him because of our sin. Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, I drew them with cords of a man, the bands of love, and I was to them as they take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them, showing his love and care. The pins or stakes point to Jesus Christ, our security. They were made of copper and resisted rust and corrosion. They were partly buried and partly above the ground. What a perfect picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was not crucified on the ground, but he hung there between earth and heaven, suspended on that cruel cross so that you and I could be saved. 
The love of Christ, the course led to the death and resurrection of Christ. If the pins or stakes were 100% in the ground, they would be useless. You could not attach the ropes to them. The death of Christ would be useless without his resurrection. Oh, how wonderful it is as we sing these songs for the cantata and prepare for it. And we thank God for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But dear friend, if he came and lived a sinless life, but if he did not die for our sins... If he was not buried, if he did not rise again, he would be just another good teacher. He would be just another person that we would read about. He could not be our Savior. But like these pens that's mentioned here, they are useful because they are not all the way in the ground and they're not all the way out. They're in the perfect place. And Jesus Christ came to die for our sins at the perfect time. And he meets us in where we are in our sin. Not above us. We're too high where we can't get to him. Not below us. We could not, that we'd have to do more than we can even imagine. Work, do all these duties to get to him. No, he's in a perfect place. A place attainable, not by our own works, but by the grace of God. The tabernacle is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hope that through this lesson tonight, through this teaching, it's hoped, opened your eyes a little more to the practicality of Exodus chapter 25, 26, and 27. And that you see it, hopefully, in a dear light. All these things we read in the Old Testament are a picture of what God was trying to teach them, that ultimately the Jews would see Jesus Christ. How is your relationship with Christ this evening? Have you grown closer to him? Do you see him in a new light? As you study the scriptures and the word of God, do you draw near to him? Is he closer to you now or is he farther away from you? You see, I believe in every day and every way, just like these Israelites had a choice to bring their sin offering because of their disobedience, we must daily go before God and ask his forgiveness to have a clean conscience, to live for him, to trust him. He gives us our daily bread. He gives us the opportunity to have daily communion with him. Oh, how wonderful, how precious it is. What a beautiful picture is a tabernacle of the Old Testament. Father God, I pray you'd help us, Lord Jesus, to understand how much you love us and then show us even in your word, things that were presented first to your people, which are the apple of your eye, the children of Israel, the Jewish people. But yet it was such a wonderful picture of your son, Jesus Christ. The importance of that laver, the importance of the brazen altar, the importance of the wood that constructed the tabernacle, all the different pieces of furniture inside the holy place and then the ark of the covenant inside the holy of holies god all speak of the importance of knowing you and communing with you if you're here tonight and you know christ is your savior oh dear friend i pray i beg you tonight to recognize your need to trust christ as your savior and fall in your face spiritually and physically and ask him to save you before it's too late but dear friend if you've sensed uh, separation from god 
as a Christian. You sense maybe uh, a lack of closeness, a lack of pure communion. Would you search your heart this evening? Would you ask yourself, am I, am I pleasing in the Lord's sight? Am I doing everything in my life in obedience and according to his own word? To his own word? 